investing in property makes sense. Investing in the right property takes knowledge. Welcome to the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. I'm Jared McCabe, Director of Wakeland Property Advisory. Join me for expert insights into the fundamentals, trends and opportunities to help you create long-term wealth through smart property decisions. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 37 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. So I thought today we could uh, step away from the Melbourne property market and get a bit of an idea as to what's happening in a, a different city around Australia. So today we're focusing on Sydney and I'm very fortunate to be joined by one of Australia's most well-known and highly regarded property commentators and buyers agents in Veronica Morgan. Veronica is the founder and principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers. She co-hosts the popular series Location Location, Location Australia, and Relocation, Relocation Australia on Foxtel's The Lifestyle Channel. She also co-hosts Your First Home Buyer Guide podcast and The Elephant in the Room podcast with Chris Bates. Welcome, Veronica. Well, thank you, Jared. Always good to chat to you. So I just wanted to um, have a bit of a, obviously, our podcast is based considerably around Melbourne and what we do down here, but it's always good to get a different perspective on things and how things are going around the rest of the country. Um, but I don't really want to focus too much on COVID. We'll focus more on what the market's doing this year. There's been enough talk around that. But just to give a bit of an overview, what happened in Sydney over that um, that sort of two-year period, 2020 and 21? <laughs> well, we were fortunate in that throughout the lockdowns, we were able to still work. And that means go and look at properties uh, and didn't have any problems with getting inspections or getting in- inspectors, you know, building inspectors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I quite liked um, th- that period of time because it was quite nice having to slot in your five-minute inspection. Yeah. <laughs> Far more and, targeted, wasn't it? Oh, it was very targeted. It was interesting, though, because um, it's not a lot of time to, to spend looking at a house. You know, we, we often yeah. joke that people spend more time looking and researching a fridge than they do a house, but <laughs> this sort of <laughs> put that on a perspective. But you know, we were able to obviously get back for second looks and, and whatever once we'd established whether it was right or not for a client. But um, things continue ticking over. And in a way, interestingly enough, it's sort of the social proof aspect change. You know, you, you go through a, a busy open house and there's this frenzy yep. and and buyers feed off, you know, the feed off the energy. When obviously you didn't have that when you've got this long lineup of five-minute inspections. But, and it's almost like it retrained buyers in okay. some strange way, you know, because then the agents were loving this cloak and dagger negotiations, yes. yep. loving it. And, of course, it got us into the space of having to do online auctions, Yes, nobody had liked doing before. And, you know, and I thought, oh, God, I remember the first one that, that we did and I was like, right, we're re- I really have to think this through because, you know, everyone knows, I think anyone who's ever listened to anything that I do or write about that I – auctions are a bit of a pet you know pet um subject for me so i was like how can we bring our advantage into the online auction space so that was a challenge i have to say um and we did have to bid differently and you're looking for different signs and um our and some of those bloody platforms too that they they give you an extra five minutes you know the, the highest bids yeah, and it took a long time to for them. I don't know how you found it, but certainly early days, um, the technology side of things and, and the different forms, so all the different types of platforms and whether or not you mm. could see other people on the screen and different agencies had different yes. requirements as to whether or not you had to have your screen on or whether you could bid blind. It was really unusual. 
Oh, I know. It was a bit nuts. And, you know, I thought the, the Zoom ones were the most bizarre. Just watching, like, you know, I, I position myself when I'm at auction to look at other bidders. Yep. I don't really care too much what the auctioneer is doing, um, whereas most people position themselves to watch the auctioneer. Now, so in Zoom, when <laughs> you get all these people's faces <laughs> and then they, they turn their screen off at certain strategic times, it just I just found it fascinating. Yeah, but anyway, it was very different. So, yeah, we're back to normal now. But I think what also happened in terms of, um, you know, we're all locked in, whether you're in Melbourne, you couldn't get out looking at property, or whether you're in Sydney and you could get out looking at property, we're still locked in for significant periods of time. So it was very interesting to see what happened at the end of 2020 when we came, I can't remember exactly when we came out of lockdown now, but but I always had this sense that when people are locked up inside their own four walls for any period of time, if that property is in any way unsatisfactory or if they really hate their family and they want more space, <laughs> yep. you know, they would come out like greyhounds chasing a bunny around a track, yep. you know, and that's exactly what happened. So it was very quick and we were a bit tentative in those sort of first first weeks, I think it must have been August when the first on-site auction I went back to, 2020, cussing my mind back now, we were very tentative uh, in terms of, well, what does this mean? For comp- competition, what does it mean for the market? What does it mean for prices? Um, and it didn't take long for us to see that this is going to be strong. Mm. We could feel it. Were you coming off the back of a strong finish to 2019 like Melbourne was? I think that's part of the reason why Melbourne, when it did have the opportunity to, tr- to transact, that the market kept on going well. If I, I always wonder what would have happened to the market if we'd been fairly dormant and quiet, uh, the, the back end of 2019 leading into 2020. Yeah, 100%. So we, I think we had very similar sort of timing with our cycles, Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, Sydney peaked middle of 2017, sorry, 2017. Uh, the mid, whoops, Siri, no Siri, um, my watch has decided to talk to me. <laughs> we, we definitely following the election, mid 2019, we felt a change and that started biting yep. in September that yep. year. And and yep. it did come strong into Christmas, which is very unusual. Uh, usually in spring, there's an influx of stock, but that was like two years of pent-up demand when you think about it. Uh, and the when, clearance when Mark, rate normally drops in spring too. And I really noticed in 2019, it just didn't drop. It just kept growing and growing. Exactly. Yeah, we had exactly the same situation. So then coming into 2020, we had ridiculously high. In fact, I've got, I, I, I track all this stuff. I've got, I've got it all in my computer here. But we had, just don't have it open, but we had, we had ridiculously high, I think we were in the 90s. Yeah. Um, Oh, maybe that was last year. Now it's all a big blur now. We had a very, very strong start to 2020. There's no doubt about it. In fact, clearance rates, I definitely remember, were well in the 80s, um, right up to the beginning of March. And then, of course, from the 14th of March onwards, it went, oh, oh bong. Yeah, yeah, it changed <laughs> so, drastically. So but you're right. I think I think so. I think, therefore, that it fed off that. But you know how sentiment can, can yeah. really take a bashing. And regardless of whether there's a good opportunity or not, they just won't buy. You know, that could have happened too. So I, I think that even though there was that leading into it, I still do think being stuck in your house if it wasn't big enough, I think was a – and it changed people's incentive. thoughts about yeah. what they require in, yeah. in their home. All right. So looking at this year, what, what changes have you experienced? Obviously, interest rate rises and the global uncertainty around Russia and the Ukraine and things is, is probably proving a bit of an issue. But when you've had two years of pretty strong growth as well, that's always there's always likely to be a correction of some sort. So how mm. is the Sydney market 
um, shaping up or how has it shaped up thus far and in, in looking into spring? Yeah, well, the beginning of the year was still quite strong. And look, retrospectively, when you look at core logic data, it shows very clearly that Sydney peaked in January. And certainly we had seen, obviously, the trajectory of that growth rate, um, the steepness of that had eased off in the latter half of 2021. So you knew that it was sort of, there was sort of energy coming out of it a little bit. But certainly in February, we still had a lot of pent-up demand. And I'm sure it's similar in, in um, Melbourne in that you've got the Christmas period because yep. it's auction-oriented. And, look, I know the whole of Sydney is not auction-oriented, but, you know, they're sort of more expensive and the inner ring certainly is. Um, we, the clearance rates held up very well against a high degree of new stock coming on the market. Okay. And that's because there's also a pent-up demand amongst buyers, people who haven't been able to buy at the end of last year, and it was yep. a, ridiculously, a ridiculous year to try to buy property 2021. Um, they've taken a hiatus, you know, that there's been a good six-week period where really there's no stock coming on the market because there's, you can't run a full auction campaign with Christmas in the middle yep. and the holidays. So there's all this pent-up demand. Now, it didn't start to come out really till, you know, it, it, March was relatively strong and then you saw it really start tapering off quite steeply. And look, that in itself is no strangeness because you've got Easter, England, Easter yeah. and the school holidays April's and blah, blah, blah. But you definitely saw that, you know, the, obviously the, the commentary around the RBA raising, you know, deciding to raise rates and that happened in May. And so there was this sort of preemptive um I guess, lack of confidence or, or a decline in confidence, shall we say. And you can definitely see that in auction clearance rates and you could see that you could feel it on the ground as well. But you know what I find? There's two sort of anomalies that we've experienced. And one is that normally when the market goes down, when the press is negative, and it started in 2021, let's face it, with all those bank predictions, um, and normally when prices do start to come off the boil, you will suddenly see a marked decrease in people going through open houses. Yeah. But this time round, we have not seen that. We have, and, and I will preface that by saying we also on the ground are looking at A-grade properties. Yes. I know that the agents are complaining that Bs and Cs are struggling. Yeah. But the A-grade properties, even they are very busy open houses. And even though not always buyers aren't necessarily prepared to compete, certainly not as hard as they were competing last year for the same type of property, but it's really interesting to think even if they're not doing anything, there's an interest there. Yeah. Because normally when the market falls off in Sydney, if the market falls off, people aren't interested in property. They won't even go to the neighbours auction. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's the first anomaly. And the second anomaly is that core logic data has shown that the, the top 25th percentile has fallen the most. And I can honestly tell you, I've got some clients with some pretty decent budgets and those markets, and once again, I guess it's biased because I'm only looking at A-grade A property, but I'm not seeing a huge amount of softening in that end. Okay, okay. And is the stock level still reasonably strong in that sector or is it um, is that coming off a bit too? Well, that's always it's a, it's it's always a tough to buy, one. Yeah. Yeah, it's never easy to buy good property, really. Um, so, uh, you know, definitely we've seen a reduction in stock levels. It, one of those markets, and so that's sort of the um, North Shore of Sydney, that market, a lot of the agents in the bigger family homes, 
the agents there in particular are saying that they've got quite a good spring that they're looking forward to in terms of listing levels. So that should be interesting to see how that bears out. Yeah, absolutely. Are you, in terms of one of the things that we've started to notice this year is that we are really starting to see more investors coming back into the marketplace. Are, are you mm. seeing anything along those lines up in Sydney? Yeah, we are. We are. <laughs> be interesting with the, you know, Queensland's land tax. Yes. <laughs> All of a sudden, the southern states will start looking at being attractive again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, we are, we are seeing... Um, much more investor activity. Do you know what's interesting in Sydney, though? I think there's a perception, and it's fair because it is the most expensive city in Australia, and there's a perception amongst a lot of investors that, oh, you don't buy in the most expensive suburbs or you don't buy in the most expensive city. So there's no value. But, you know, value is relative, of course. Yep. Um, so it is quite interesting because usually, you know, the, the majority of investors who aren't that educated about property will chase what they perceive to be valuable yes. value and they'll go for affordability. Yep. Um, and so you, you don't see that, that sort of investor sentiment, I guess, reaction in Sydney, whereas you might in others, in other, maybe in, in some of the regional centres, perhaps in, you know, Geelong and Newcastle and, and Brisbane for that matter and Adelaide, you, you would see... Uh, investor activity as potentially as a barometer of, of something else, or some level of confidence. Yeah, generally, whereas Sydney does behave differently. We're seeing it at the moment. I think there's a number of reasons for it. I think interest rates have um, have certainly played a part, but I think the um, the significant reduction in the vacancy rate from a rental market point of view mm. is, is certainly encouraged. It just it's it's starting to really show some positive signs and give investors confidence that they haven't had for the past two years because the rental market's been um, so soft that they, they have got confidence that they'll be able to secure good quality tenants. And yeah. rent, the vacancy rate's not only dropping, but rental figures are now not just back up to where they were pre the pandemic, they're actually starting to exceed it in certain sectors as well. Yes, yeah. Um, Absolutely. And then that helps, obviously. But the, you know, I guess the, the thing is in Sydney, you know, we were looking at period of time, oh, not that long ago, pre-COVID obviously, but um, where you'd be happy if you got a 2.5% um, yield. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty bad. But then you have to offset that with your growth, you know. Your Correct, growth, exactly. Choosing yeah. a growth asset, but it is quite pretty bad when you look at cash flow and you think, oh, I've got to be able to fund the difference. The interesting thing, the other thing I wanted to check in with you on, again, comparing, trying not to directly compare, but looking at how Melbourne and Sydney are similar and different in, in certain ways, is that the apartment market here, and, and we've done a number of podcasts, we did a webinar with Stuart Weems recently as well, um, around the apartment market performance, and it hasn't been as good um, as in Melbourne in recent years as we would have expected. But mm. I don't believe that's the case in Sydney. It's been, the, the apartment market's done reasonably well over the, the pandemic time. It's a very interesting um, topic, and I released one of my little rant videos recently on this, actually, you know, because apartment data is so difficult to rely on making decisions, right? Because it's such and, a different type, isn't there? Well, there's just so much in it. You've got to be able to pull it all apart mm. and, and understand what it is you're looking at. So we haven't had the same issues with oversupply in Sydney that they've been, you've had in Melbourne and also in Brisbane. Um but we do have some pockets of extraordinary supply, all of it awful in, in my view. I would never be going there, um, not with my money nor with my clients. Um, and we have seen, like to give you an example, there's it's almost like another, it's like a metropolis out at Mus Mascot near the airport. Yep. So that's on the eastern, the southeastern side of Sydney. Now, when all of that stuff was started, was coming into completion, it really had an impact on the rental market far and wide. 
there's so much stock coming on and lots of rental incentives and, um, you know, brand new, whatever. Um, And so, like, I would talk to property managers in Bondi, for instance, who's saying, well, yeah, I've got, we're losing tenants to go and rent these huge brand new three-bedroom apartments. Wow. um, You know, because it's so much cheaper, et cetera, et cetera, and it's brand new and no one's ever lived in it. Whether those people end up, sort of coming back to Bondi and places like that or not, I don't know. But so it's the first time I'd ever really experienced a a ripple effect in terms of impacting tenancies and vacancy rates that extended quite some distance. I mean, Bondi is not close to Mascot. No, not at all. Um, And so... In a way, I feel like that that probably contributed. That's one example of what had contributed to Sydney's terribly low vacancy rates um, for a period of time, and really sucked a lot of tenants out of out of the market over in that direction. So, um, you know, and then so of course, but an owner occupier who wanted to buy, you know, a place in Bondo Beach, well, they don't really care what, what no. they're going to get no. or not get because they're not going to rent it out. So, but. It's sort of funny how it had this sort of knock-on effect for a bit. So I have to say that there's been a period of time, you know, the whole cookie-cutter type of idea of apartments, we know that they don't perform. And there's been no surprises in Sydney. Those apartments haven't performed here either. But where you've got, you know, in a beach-sized suburb where there's a finite amount of of, um, apartments and land, where you've got there's a finite amount of properties with views, where you're looking at warehouse apartments, art deco, where you're looking in the inner city suburbs, say Potts Point and Surrey Hills and places like that. There's a lot of garbage stock everywhere. But yes. The good stuff, the good stuff really, really has done very, very well because of its scarcity. But then what we also found last year in particular is that with houses, because the really this boom that we just had has been an owner occupier housing led boom. And then yeah. it's basically the ripple effect down through the property types and and, and um, price brackets, and so that started getting into houses, in, sorry, into apartments. So people started then saying, "Well, I can't afford mm. even a two-bedroom cottage in the inner city now. I'm going to have to, or a three-bedroom. I'm going to have to pivot to an apartment, or I'm going to have to move out in the yep. out the burbs." Yeah. And so we saw, we really saw all of a sudden some of those more unique, the better apartments. Oh, some crazy prices. Right. And it's like, bang. It was like automatic. You know, when I say automatic, it was like overnight, bang. Everything everything in that ilk suddenly just went stupid. Wow. Yeah, and, so that's that's really different to down here. That's really interesting. Mm. So, and then we saw that ripple down too. So it started with the three bedders, then it started with the big two bedders, mm-hmm. and all the cookie cutter stuff still wasn't going to get those prices, but there'd be a little bit of a spillage into that, I guess. And then we saw the oversized one-bedders because, of course, one-bedrooms were so on the nose at yeah. lockdowns. Yep. Um, but the big ones started, you know, so ones where people maybe have moved to the country, moved up, up yep. and down the coast. town base. The, yep. Want a town base. They want decent living space, decent storage space, all that sort of stuff. So your 60-square-metre one-bedders, they started going crazy, but it was this sort of. It was quite. It was like tick one on one. One segment went crazy, then you bang, could see it coming and almost set your clock by. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, right. It's like watching the bushfire come towards you. Which, again, so the interesting part there is that we haven't seen that as much. And I just wonder whether or not you mentioned there that the um, the, the lockdown on the um, had a real impact on that one-bedroom market until that flow-on effect really kicked in. I think yep. that's been a, a big thing because our lockdowns were so much more extensive than what the rest of the country were. I think that that apartment mindset or the fear of being locked up in an apartment for an extended mm. period of time has, has really played out. And a lot of people have, rather than maintaining their lifestyle and, and looking to, if I can't afford the, the little house, the terrace house in the inner city, I'll go to the apartment, they've actually looked more at going further out uh, because of those lockdowns and and at the time not necessarily feeling as though um, they need to access the city anymore because there's so much working from home. And so that's what's um, led to a lot of uh, movement to the outer suburbs, but also to the uh, the regional areas and obviously up into northern New South Wales and and into Queensland as well, which again was another question. Have you noticed or seen it all? And We haven't yet, but I'm expecting it to come about at some stage, almost a reverse tree change, sea change, where people who have made that move coming back I literally bookmarked an article I saw on LinkedIn today on that. And it's a joint venture between CBA and the Regional Development Association or something. Um, and I haven't read it yet. So because I absolutely anticipate a U-turn. Yeah. And, and I not, not, only, not only because I'm some demographic expert, which I'm not, but because I do understand human nature and I also know that certainly when we were filming the show, travelling all around yep. Australia, yep. it's really interesting talking to ag- real estate agents who work in regional towns um, and particularly uh, particularly coastal areas because that seems to have that happen where people would do this sort of sea change and then the, the amount of reversals. So, and there's some areas is, you know, they would say up to 50% of people would turn around within a year and want to go wow. back. Wow, okay. Like, so... It's and these are nice areas. It's just that when they get there, it's not the holiday vibe anymore, you know. Well, that's and, yeah, that's I've had this discussion. I mean, me being from the country as well, I I know what it's like living in a regional area, and I could very mm. comfortably go and do it tomorrow. But my wife couldn't. She, it's not mm. not her cup of tea. And I know a lot of people made the change during the pandemic. Um, probably brought things forward, so perhaps had planned to do it over five, in a five-year time frame and, and this brought it forward. But there was others that made it more on a knee-jerk basis and yep. that, they're the ones that I think are far more likely to um, to reverse at some stage. Yeah, because, you know, yeah, sure, lockdown might have been nicer in the regions. But, you know, as we can see, this, you know, our governments are pretty, well, the whole world is getting used to living with, you know, rolling bouts of COVID. You know, we're, we're not, we're probably, you know, I don't, you know, barring another pandemic, which, hey, that could happen, let's face it. You know, I don't think that we're going to have a lockdown every year. You no. know, And I think when people sort of get used to that, and it's interesting, I was talking to someone who moved down the south coast and she said, oh, you know, she dropped a phone and, and cracked the, the, the face of it. Even this little thing like that, she can drive for an hour, yeah. to take it to a store, and then, you know, and then when it's fixed, has to drive for, that's two hours, an hour there, an hour back, had to go another two-hour journey to get the phone back. Yeah, it's... And it's a small thing, but it's all the conveniences that we're so used to we just take so for granted in the cities. Um, you know, you don't have, and you've got, you've got to plan better. You've got to think things through a lot more, you know, your friendships, your connections. There's a whole, whole lot of things that change. And I think also with this um, rental crisis, it's people have not had the opportunity to try before they buy. 
No, so, that's right. And that was a lot of yeah. people did jump into that down on the coastal regions. I'll, I'll, I'll lease out for 12 months while I'm, and keep my house in the city. So people who mm. got in quickly um, were able to do that. But the, some of the rental prices and things that have been paid in some of those um, coastal or, or tree change type locations were just astronomical during the, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's sort of, um, and also, and I, and some of those those towns, I've wondered if if there has been an, enough of an influx of a younger demographic with kids and the whole palaver, you know, they they have a whole need, social needs are different, their infrastructure needs are different um, than what would have been there previously, and so I guess if some of those towns have enough of that, you know, younger dem younger cohort there. And those things do change great. But as we all know, these things aren't sort of things that change overnight. And, you know, families may decide that they're not getting the support or the, you know, all the things that they require, mm. you know, in terms of living there. So, or that just, you know, their general, you know, they've brought down the average age far too much and they feel like it's, yeah. not really the, it's not really their, their groove anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, just to, to wrap things up, what are your expectations for the spring market in Sydney? What are you seeing? What are you thinking you'll, um, you're expecting to experience for your clients? Yeah, very good question because, um, and I'll preface what I'm going to say by saying that typically, you know, Sydney is very seasonal. I think it um, follows a similar pattern to Melbourne. Yep. And although less so to some degree because um, our winters aren't quite as hard. <laughs> so, so you've probably got slightly um, less of a decline in winter winter listings. And so normally what happens is in September when this everyone sort of gets the idea that, oh, spring is the time to sell. I still can't believe that that's a real spring selling season. It's like actually not if you want the best price for your property mm -hmm. normally, yep. right? So, you know. That's you another podcast when, we can do. Well, yeah. <laughs> don't want to be selling when everyone's selling. That's sort of not the point. But anyway, so the, but there's this pervading, you know, pervasive belief that spring is the time to sell. So in most years, what that happens, as you mentioned earlier, clearance rates start falling off. People, buyers start thinking, oh, this is, all, this is fine. I can just sit on my hands now. I've got choice. And so any urge, sense of urgency comes out of the marketplace. Prior to COVID, right, so prior, to, well, really prior to 2019, there's only been two years, and I've been in real estate now since 20, 2000, there's only been two years where that hasn't happened, where basically the market went straight, you know, full pelt right up to Christmas. Yep. And that was 2007 and it was 2016. Now, in both cases, the following year was the end of the boom. Yep. So, that you know, 2008, we all know we had... Um, GFC. GFC. No, I don't know if they're necessarily linked, those two things. But certainly in 2016, the market had been showing signs of running out of steam, but had been bolstered by a couple of interest rate drops. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I think that was the last ditch of an overshoot of a market at the end of 2016. Now, the same thing did happen in 2019, but as we discussed, you know, the, the circumstances were different yep. and it was coming off the back of two years of downturn. So this year, big question, um, I'm seeing that buyers are returning. You know, there's, there seems to be a renewed, even though confidence officially is down in my segment of the market, I think people have the wherewithal to still buy property. Uh, you know, not... Uh, you know, so what about rising interest rates? Yeah. You know, they, they've got the wherewithal, whether it's because they've got a lot of equity in the property they've got and they're upgrading or they're deciding to invest. I see that people are prepared to say, okay, I, I'm I'm prepared to 
to go ahead and buy either upgrade or, or invest. And I find that interesting because there's this all this data out there to suggest that that shouldn't be the way people are reacting. But I think we're all also looking at aggregate data. And there's a lot of first home buyers and a lot of people who haven't benefited through this period of time that we've had last couple of years. But I think people who already own property and they've benefited from that uplift in value, I think there is a wealth effect that is not necessarily being communicated or it's not necessarily making its way into the confidence data. And so I'm seeing anecdotally, and a lot of brokers are telling me this too, that they're actually seeing you know, increase in inquiry. But I fully accept that that is within a very middle class segment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm seeing. At the same time, as I mentioned earlier, agents are saying stocks coming on. So I don't know how that'll play out. Whether it just tread water and we'll continue to have you know clearance rates sort of hovering around sixty percent as a balanced market. Perhaps that that will be what happens. Yeah. Look, it's very interesting times. I mean, it's it's certainly uh, significant. Well, from our perspective, it's a very different market to what we were experiencing twelve months ago. But um, mm. I don't certainly don't think it's as negative as what um, some would have you believe. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. And and I've, you know, I've mentioned earlier, I've started real estate in, 20, in, in 2000. I've been doing it now, what, 22 years. This is the time when I'm finding it harder to read um, what might happen. The signs are different. They're pointing in different directions. So <laughs> I don't know. And look, and, and I know your message is very much similar to mine. It, it's probably the same, really. It's like if you buy a quality asset, you buy with the long term in mind, yep. and you also understand your own personal numbers and cash flow and all the rest of it, then you just buy when you're ready, but buy when you find a good asset. I mean, there's no point trying. I, mean, I know that there's some bargain hunters out there at the moment. I'm like, well, you're still not going to get a good asset as a bargain. I mean, no. you might no. luck it, but it is luck. Yeah, if you go to a mar- if you go to a good quality asset, whether it's an auction or expression of interest, whatever it might be, expecting to pick it up for a bargain, there's no you're just not going to. Whereas, if you go there with the mindset of I'll I'll do what I need to within reason to buy this property, um, mm. you may be fortunate enough to get it for a bargain, but it won't be to do with the property. It'll more than likely be to do with something that's happened during the campaign that's yes. made it fall into your lap. <laughs> and so, and on that. We do pay particular attention to what agents are quoting for property yep. because the ones that accidentally, and I say accidentally because they don't deliberately set out to overquote, but every now and then you'll get one that's overquoted and we do love those ones yep. because this is quite an unforgiving market for the agent who gets the pricing wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you can have, we could have an all other podcast on underquoting as well. But the problem is that underquoting is that's the way the market operates. And it's Everyone very, sen- it's very sensitive at the moment too. If you, mm. if, if buyers don't see value at the moment, then they'll just move on to something else. Yeah, exactly right. And that the problem is buyers are part of the problem. They are. You know? Yep. Because they do that, then the agent who wants to quote the right amount of money won't, can't, because they're not doing the right thing by their vendor. Um, you know, it's, it's all these running rings around and trying to sort of ring in, oh, it, it, it's, it's chicken and egg. And it's chicken and egg sort of stuff. It really is. It makes it really hard to, I mean, you'd love to be able to say, well, uh, and I work with a, an agent down this way um, who's very, very keen on um, disclosed reserves. It's he, his mantra and he's he's been mm. very strong on it for a long period of time. And I think it's got its merits, but it also, I mean, a vendor if you sit on their side of the fence, also needs to reserve the right that if the campaign flies, then they need to be able to change their expectations. Exactly. I think it's very naive to set your price at the beginning of the campaign. You know, I, I think that, that that's, yeah, that's it's a, it's a bit, it's not sophisticated in my view. I really like the South Australian um, 
version. And if anyone, you know, likes to hear me bang on about this, I will bang on to the cow comes, cows come home. This is so clever. And it is that the, the reserve cannot be more than 10% over the guide. So the agent and the vendor can't collude to underquote. Yep. <laughs> It's beautiful. Yep. Works well. And if they increase the quoting throughout the campaign, then the reserve gets, uh, you know, to be adjusted accordingly as far as I understand. So, you know, that's the only way to do it. And and then you don't even have to worry about, um, about uh, you know, the Office of Fair Trading having to go through all the various documentation to try to prove or disprove whether they were underquoting or not. It's very easy to... to to take the two documents and put them next to each other. You can see. Yeah, exactly right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Veronica. I really appreciate you joining me today, um, and I'm sure the listeners will. I'm sure – and if uh, anyone would like to listen to Veronica further, on her podcast that she does with Chris Bates, Elephant in the Room, is fantastic. So uh, make sure you jump on whichever podcast provider you enjoy and, uh, and look it up because there's some fantastic content on there as well. Thanks, Veronica. No worries. Thank you. So thank you very much for joining Veronica and I today for episode 37 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. As always, I'd love you to share the podcast far and wide with any friends, family and colleagues who may have an interest in property. Um, And if you would like any further information, feel free to visit our website, wakeland.com.au, and we wish you all the best with your property decisions.